Hello and welcome to SourceCast Episode Pi. I'm JD. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Episode 3.14. As we mentioned last week in Episode 3, we're going to do, on the weeks that we don't do distro reviews, little mini-episodes where we maybe discuss what's going on in the Linux community, or we take viewer kind of viewer feedback, or we review, for example hate to spoiler things, but I think I did already last week. We're going to review KD4 here as well, because we've been playing with it the past week. And well, I would say, instead of playing with it, we were avoiding the urge to take another human's life, but go on. Okay, then. And, yeah, this, this episode, these point episodes are mainly for everything that really isn't a disc review. And... We'll be doing them every other week, as I mentioned, and we decided to call this episode Pi because it's the only time we'll get to have an episode Pi, so you know what? Episode 3.14, you will like it. Well, first, uh, we got an email um, from someone, we, we will call them Skeleton, with a zero instead of an O. And uh, they they like the podcast, but uh, they had a question for us. They have an, geez, this is just terrible modeling. I want to know who thought this was a good idea in marketing. An HP DV6436NR Z Alpha 2198360 Tango Foxtrot. Um, the the actual the actual model name of this thing is DV6436NR. I've I've heard of it. It's actually a decent HP laptop, from what I've heard. And he wants to know um, what distro would be the best because um, he's tried Ubuntu, Susan and Mandriva, and none seemed to work with his wireless. He was going to try Gen 2 or maybe BSD to try and compile drivers from scratch and wanted to know what distro we would recommend. I couldn't find a lot of information on the hardware in this laptop, but it looks like it is running the latest generation of craptastic Broadcom Wi-Fi. Um, BCM43XX legacy driver is totally hopeless on this platform for what I dug up. Uh, yeah. B43 may work. Um, throw some salt over your shoulder and give it a shot. But um, in terms of getting bleeding-edge hardware support, um, if you don't want to wait a few months for, for other distros to catch up, um, I Gen 2 is not a bad not a bad shot. Um, it'll probably be simpler for you in the long run, um, just because it's so ridiculously easy to get the absolute very latest kernel or even an SVN of the kernel they're working on if you're so inclined. Also, I would also recommend um, Arch, which is both me and Jeremy are now using it, because you know, first of all. It's just as easy to compile a module for your kernel as it is in Gen 2. Um, you don't have to deal with compile it. Like, it seems like he only wants it because he needs something that'll work with his Wi-Fi card, and he probably doesn't want to have to recompile all of KDE or GNOME just to get a working Wi-Fi card. Yeah, but, but before, you're, if, you, if you're not comfortable with those distros, the first place I would tell you to go is go download the alpha of the next version of Ubuntu. 
Um, I've had terrific luck with hardware support and alphas of Ubuntu for stuff I couldn't even get to work in Gen 2 or Arch. Um, some really nasty firmware-driven like software raids that really wanted to pretend really, really hard that they were a real hardware raid, and I could not get that to work in Gen 2 or Arch when I played with it, and it... It works just fine in, in the Ubuntu Alpha when I tried it. So that's probably your your easiest first place to go. But, of course, it is an, an Alpha of Ubuntu, so don't yeah. expect everything to be working nice and pretty when you try it. Yeah, the current Alpha of Ubuntu 8.10, it's using the latest kernel, which is 2.6.26. But, I mean, they haven't even made a live CD for it yet, so that just shows you how kind of... Not ready for prime time it is. Yeah, you can find some unofficial um, sort of homegrown live CDs. Give them a shot. You can? Of Alpha, like, 2? I think so, yeah. Because they say, like, next Alpha, Alpha 3, I think, is next. They will have a live CD, but... Yeah... Okay, so thanks for that email, and um, yes. keep them coming. Yep, JD at SourceCast.org and Jeremy at SourceCast.org for him. Yes, and uh, on to the next uh, part of our little discussion here, and that is uh, retouching on uh, our review last episode of SUSE 11.0. We actually had a sort of... I guess you could call it developer. He called himself a member of the OpenSUSE project, and we had him respond to our reviews. Um, I'll go ahead and take up his issue with my review, and that was that I installed it from a 10.3 disk, which, well, okay, guilty as charged there. So I did sort of overlook any installer features that were added in 11.0. So in the interest of fairness, I went and downloaded um, the 11.0 Live CD and did a completely new fresh install from that and it was a mixed bag um for well they they did fix a few of the minor things i had um the authentication method when you install it in the 11.0 uh live cd is indeed hidden by default now um uh. Also, it um, it actually gives you a helpful message that tells you what to do before you reboot. That's also good. And it has a much, much, much sexier looking um, post-install wizard. The downside is pretty much everything that I really hit OpenSUSE for to begin with, and that is ridiculously slow and ridiculously painful software management. And uh, he said, you know, uh, the disk upgrading wasn't supported, and I understood that, and I went for it anyway because at this point I don't see any reason why any distro, especially one with Novell's backing, shouldn't be able to pull off um, disk upgrade. Can I can't name a major distro that can't disk upgrade. Can you? I, ca- I can't name a minor distro that can't disk upgrade. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, something all that new here. Debian's been able to just upgrade since Woody, and of course, you've had rolling Before release. Woody, actually, um, it's been able to just upgrade since, I think, one release before Woody. And, and then, of course, you've had people like Gen 2 and Arch where you just don't even bother. You keep rolling on. So I don't, I don't see why they technically can't do that. I think asking your users to go to the trouble 
to download a CD every six months or however often you release and do a complete risky, might I add, very risky install from a CD because if something goes wrong, it's a much higher odds of being, you know, unbootable. At least when you disk upgrade, you can leave fallback kernels and things like that. So Yeah, fallback kernels and you can still CH root, you know, everything still pretty much works a little bit, you know. But upgrading from a CD and also, I mean, I didn't read the documentation, but it's also probably suggested that when you upgrade from a CD that you also reformat, which – so you're basically telling everybody, back up your data every six months. Otherwise, you, will, you shouldn't upgrade. It's just yeah. – And the other thing he said was that um, – well, first off, my Wi-Fi – Still didn't work in 11.0, and it is an evil Broadcom card, but it's been around an awful long time, folks. It should work by now. Um, yeah. And he said, you know, hey, if you're and if you don't have an internet connection, how are we supposed to, you know, go pull the repositories? And my answer to that is, well, all you're changing in the path of the repositories between releases is a version number. It shouldn't even have to go out and poll somewhere on the Internet to begin with. It should say, hey, these are official repositories. They're going to be there. So whenever you get on the Internet, just look here anyway. Yeah. I mean, Seems like a pointless step to me. Pretty much. I, I would agree. I mean, if you install Debian or Ubuntu or... Really, those are the only two I've actually tested this with. From SCD without an internet connection, it will put the entries for the repos in the sources.list. I mean, on Ubuntu, it comments them out. On Debian, it doesn't. But still, at least they're there. So uh, do you have any particular other issues to address from where he brought up things from your review? Well... Um, most of the, he only really brought up, uh, three things from my view. One, and I will agree to this, AppArmor is not proprietary. I know it's open source because Ubuntu uses it now, not by default, but it's in the repos. And I, I just, I don't see why you couldn't have gone for SE Linux. That's all I'm saying. I mean, what, you know, why reinvent the wheel? That's all I'm saying. Uh, you know, he, he mentioned that the password encryption options are hidden behind the exchange button now. I didn't notice that, but, you know, my brain automatically clicks those things. So it just could have been that I forgot. I'll, I'll give them that. As for Nano and Pico, <laughs> uh, yeah, he basically said Nano and Pico weren't on because, A, New users don't really know about Nano and Pico, which is reasonably true, but if they've been taught even a little bit about Linux, they know about them. And that they take up too much space on the live CD. Yeah, that's a, that's um, a, such a load of shit. You could, can't you fit Nano on a freaking floppy disk? Let me, let me just be 100% bleedingly accurate here. I'm looking at Lenny 2.0.7 here. Lenny 2.0.7 installed on i386 is 
1,396 kilobytes. So just under the size of a floppy. That's fair. I mean, that's... Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I see zero reason to not include Nano or at least Pico. I mean, those are tiny but very versatile text editors that are far more friendly to a power user than, say, Emacs or VI. Please don't flame me if you grew up on Emacs or VI. I'm just telling you, my generation, most of them don't want to do without all that mess. They find Nano just fine. Also, he mentioned sudo, because I mentioned that sudo is a bit confusing. He mentioned that sudo isn't the default way to enter root. I'm sorry, are you guys back in 1995 some more? Because last I checked, on every distro, sudo is the default way to enter root. No distro uses su anymore by default. I won't give them too much grief for that, for the simple fact that I f- a, I freaking hate sudo. It has its uses, but on a desktop, they're minimal. I'll, I'll give you that. And B, it really doesn't solve the fundamental security problem of using root excessively. All you're really doing is forcing users to go through a little extra hassle to keep doing things as root. If you want to address that problem, educate them on why they shouldn't run it as root and just let them use normal SU. Right, but I mean, still, it's it's not like it's changing anything. I mean, GKSU or KDESU has pretty much the same functions as sudo. It works pretty much the same. So yeah, I find what I do a lot of times on the machines I have is I just leave the terminal running in root. Um, yeah, so do I. And and just so I can do things quickly. And if I'm on Ubuntu, the first thing I'll do is I'll just do sudo su and and get right in, so I won't have to be bothered with it anymore. The the other problem that I mentioned that he uh, brought up was the computer menu, also known as the slab menu. It was done via usability testing, blah blah blah. That like you know, it's meant. For six, most people use six to eight applications daily, and the rest are hidden. And you know, it select it automatically puts your favorite applications, the ones you use the most from the past week, up on uh, the main window. But a favorite applications did not work for me, and b it's just I mean. I really dislike that you click more applications and it opens a freaking window. Why can't you click more applications and it transforms that little mini panel, that mini section of the panel where your applications are, to a menu like the way Mint menu works? All right, yeah, kick off in, in KDE four one. Or or kick off, because I mean. That's what I like. I'll, I'll use Mint Menu, but Kickoff works almost identically. You know, by default, it's you know the basic favorite applications or you know recommended applications or whatever. And then you click a button, and it goes to right in that same uh, slab menu. It goes into you know app uh, uh, accessories and multimedia, internet, all that stuff. I just I just don't see why it couldn't have been implemented that way. 
Okay, so thanks for the uh, for the feedback, um, Kevin. I, I I don't want to say his last name for fear of butchering it. Dupuy, maybe D U P U I. But uh, we we encourage this sort of feedback from people you know in and around distros, and I know um, when we get to Fedora, which won't be too very long, that uh, we've had a Fedora ambassador already volunteer to file bug reports on anything we find so we hey we encourage you to to sort of interact with us hey it's it's ultimately yeah. good for everybody pretty much pretty much okay so on to kde 4.1 and i will take the lead on this one simply because um well i i wouldn't say that i okay kde 4.1 as taken as a whole is better and an upgrade than and a legitimate upgrade to KDE 3.x. However, I don't just dislike the panel in KDE 4.1. Oh no. I have a raging psychotic foaming at the mouth hatred of the panel in KDE 4.1. I want to know who the hell thought of this so I can take out a titanium face golf club and whack them in the nuts repeatedly until I feel better. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with you. I'll go ahead and touch on what's good uh, before I get to the panel, simply because the panel is full of so much hatred. Um, yeah. First off, the new compositing window manager, KWIN, it's, I like it. It's nice. Sex. It's... Yeah, it's... It's good. It's like 80-90% of the functionality of Compiz Fusion with a tiny fraction of the overhead. It's great. Exactly. I I am kind of anti-Compiz simply because it's a little more over it's a little bit too much overhead for just like pretty graphics, but uh yeah, I I really like the K-Wing compositor and as I mentioned previously on the show, I do use GNOME, but I might Start using GNOME with KWIN 4, which will just be an incredible mind fuck. <laughs> and, um. And yes, when you see it, you will shit bricks. <laughs> um, I, I do like the widgets, the, the widget concept, and the fact that it works with Google Gadgets. Um, one well, way it may not work with Google Gadgets yet, I'm not sure, but I do know it works with uh, OS X, um, widgets or gadgets or whatever you which call them. Which is plenty. OSX has like 20,000 widgets available. Um, the other uh, change that we talked, which I already touched on, was the kickoff menu. At first, I hated it, but I've sort of grown into it. It it, it does sort of work for me. After I put, um, I used to put the little icons of, of apps that I used all the time into the actual taskbar. We'll get to why that sucks so much in a minute in the panel. Yeah. But in kickoff, I can just set them in my favorites, and I can, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight spots for favorites before you have to scroll. And that gets 90% of what I want to do in there. Um, and the applications yeah. menu is not that bad. It's it's kind of like. Also, I like how easy it is. You just right click on the K menu. And you click switch to classic style, yes. and it's switched back to classic. It's just very easy. You don't have to, like, remove K-menu, remove K add kickoff, remove kickoff, add K-menu. No, easy. Yes. 
And um, the, applica- the, the applications browser is sort of like a bizarre in-place version of the like paneled file browsing in OSX, or the column-style file browsing in OSX, where instead of going into a new column, it's like it stays in the current one and like moves over. That's the best yeah. way I know to explain it. It's a, it's a very unique way to browse through uh, your, your K menu or Start menu, whatever you want to call it. I like it. I, like I said, at first I didn't like it so much, but it, it really grew on me after a little while. And yeah. I, I some of the widgets, especially the ones I cut on default, I really liked. Um, devices recently plugged in. I love this. You put you pop in a CD, you plug in uh, your your MP3 player, your external USB drive, and it pops into this little device manager in the panel, and it's real good. And if you hover over it, it gives you a little eject button. It's great. It's simple. I love it. And get this, I plugged in my Sansa, and it showed an icon of a Sansa on it. Little touch. I like nice. it. Yeah, it's it's nice. It's nice. Um, I I did notice a performance increase, not not as palpable on my old ThinkPad laptop, but it really showed on my desktop. On my desktop, it really sort of spread its wings and flew. It is noticeably faster, um, especially logging in for the first time. You know, it's I would say the load time to actually go from the splash screen to actually it's done loading is probably cut in half. Um, wow. noticeably faster. All that said, there's the panel. Well, I, I want to mention something. We both used uh, we both used KD Mod Four, yes. and I used KD Mod Three for about a week before they moved over to Four by default. And you used KD Mod probably about for maybe two, three weeks before they moved over to Four. Mm-hmm. Um. Like, the super sexy default theme is not as sexy in KDE Mod 4. Yeah. I mean, it's good, but it's not yeah. But it's not um, wet chair-inducing, shall we say? You don't need to towel yourself off now anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, to the panel. Um, first off, it took me several hours to figure out how to scale the panel. I'm not talking about how wide it it takes up at the bottom. I'm not talking about... I'm talking about, like, how if you... In the the past in KDE, you could right-click on it, you go to size, and you could set it to custom or presets, and and, because I like mine to be the the 32 pixels, I I believe the preset they call it is small. It's it's the one one up from tiny. It's 32 px icons all all up and down the taskbar. It's nice and small. It gets out of my way. I like it like that. It took me probably four or five hours to figure out how to get it like that. And of all the places you would have thought I would have found that Google, nothing. The Arch Linux forum, nothing. The Arch Linux wiki, nothing. I found it on freaking YouTube because somebody had to make a video to explain how to do it. <laughs> That is yeah, that is so incredibly awful. Basically, um, you there's the little cashew on the far right of the panel, and you click it, and you go into quote unquote edit mode. And it looks at first really weird because what's calling your attention in edit mode are the widget buttons to add and remove widgets to the panel. I mean, it, a lot of the functionality there is very not obvious. 
First yeah. off, to rearrange things, like if you wanted to put your clock on the far left instead of the far right, um, you have to. If you hover over something in the panel with your mouse, then you get the little arrow icons that pop up to let you move things around. I I probably spent ten minutes, you know, because I used to just right click on it and there'd be an option there that said move, and I could slide it up yep. around with my mouse and just click and let it go, and wherever I dropped it, it would be. Apparently, such things are too obvious now. Apparently, drag and drop is simply not sexy enough. I don't know. Go figure. Yeah. Um, in terms of scaling how how wide your your panel is by default, there's a system of sliders, and the blue ones are how wide you want it maximum, and the green ones are how big you want it minimum. And if you hover over it and it takes a while, you got to hover over it for like four or five seconds, it'll explain that. So that's not that bad. And there's a middle yep. slider where you control the position. Again, it's it's not a bad way to do it, but it's certainly not obvious. It would have been great if the first time you hit the cashew, there was like a tool tip that comes up mandatory that explains this BS. Yeah, because this is very unintuitive. Like, you know, you you either have to be a complete genius or a complete idiot to figure it out. And here is where you, and, and when you're in edit mode after you've clicked the cashew, that's how you control the panel size. Um, at the top is a very, very thin bar. It's got three itty bitty little dots in it. And if you put your mouse on this razor thin, it's got to be only like three pixels wide, if that. Oh, yeah. Um, your your arrow your cursor will change to up and down arrows, and if you click and drag, you can scale how up and down how big you want the panel to be. But that first off, that is like completely hidden. You you would have to accidentally stumble onto that. Right, or watch the YouTube video that shows you how to do <laughs> yes. it. Yes. But making things worse, if you just slide that around, not even, you know, just to see what it does, the panel at least for me, didn't scale in real time when you moved your mouse. So if you move yeah, your mouse and hold sec. it, exactly, it, it, after you move your mouse, it'll take a little bit for everything to redraw. So if you if you just play around and move it expecting something to happen, you can, oh, well, nothing happened. I better move it back. Hmm. <sighs> yeah, you'll be confused for like five minutes there. Um, and now here, here's a... A particularly galling change. In KDE3, the the interface mantra, as I understood it, was if you wanted to configure something, right-click it. Don't care where it is, don't care what it is. Right-click it, and by God, you can configure it. I challenge you to figure out how to change the clock from 24-hour mode to 12-hour mode. Hmm, can I right-click the clock? Mm, doesn't work. Can I right-click well, the clock? Well, you can. Well, okay. You can right-click the clock, yeah. and it does take you to some settings, but none of them are from to change it from 24-hour to 12-hour. Correct. And you say, hmm, okay, so I'm, I'm taking you through the thought process here. Maybe I should right-click on the panel. Nope. Uh, okay, maybe I should click the cashew and go into edit mode for the panel. No. Maybe I should right-click on it while in edit mode. No. Okay. Hmm. And of course, Google and the, and the typical you know places to look for this were also very devoid on, on solutions for this. So, out of desperation, I went into KDE Control Panel, and 
on the general screen, the first screen you see, aha, computer administration, date and time. Oh, we're getting somewhere. And you click it, and it brings up the locale, like change your time zone, change your date and time, and NTP sync. Nowhere to change the formatting. So you, you kind of scratch your head and say, huh. At the, I mean, at this point, I was guessing. I was just clicking stuff at random. As it turns out, to change the clock in the panel from 24-hour mode to 12-hour mode, you have to go to the completely WTF location of go to the KDE Control Center, go under the Personal tab, Personal, that makes sense, and then go into Regional and Language. That makes even less sense. I would go there if I thought, hey, I want to change, like, from English to Spanish. Or dollars to great GBP. Yes. Written pounds. And under country, region, and language, there's a whole bunch of little tabs over on the right, and one of them is time and dates. And there, finally, for the love of God and everything holy, you can change the time formatting. And what makes that even worse is you actually have to use the drop-down because it's something very unintelligent. Like, you can't just, you know, it's HHMM and mm. SS if you said seconds. It's not as simple as removing, like, one of the H's or adding AM to the end or something like that. It's like you got to add something friggin' weird to yeah, the drop-down. Yeah, they, the, the way they sort of zero-pad is to use a lowercase versus a capital case. It's not really your typical kind of deal. But it but it did allow me to delete the AMPM specification on the time format to get rid of the freaking one of my huge pet peeves of the little AMPM thing at the end of the clock because hey, I wake up in the morning, I can see the sun, I know whether it's AM or PM. Yes. So I mean, that's like to change the clock from twenty four hour format to twelve hour format. You like. I struck out probably, I guess, had to have 12, 15, 20 guesses before I finally found it. Just a whole yeah, bunch. Just... Almost everything dealing with the panel is just Failed. poorly thought of, hard to configure, not intuitive to use. It's, it's just bad. <laughs> and for me, I mean, I hoped... I really, really hardcore hoped that Copete in KD4 would be awesome because I'm a big Copete fanboy. Uh, I used it under GNOME for a long while, for a long while until I moved over this to this Debian install. Taskbar flashing broke. I'm not completely blaming Debian. I'm not blaming Copete. I'm not blaming anyone for that. Just saying it happened. And I was giving big hopes to Copete with KD4. Now, I add my Java account, it crashes. I add my, I try going back in, removing Java, adding my MSN account. Crashes. You know, like, like I mentioned last episode, I expected KD4 to be really nice, but no. Yeah, I'm, I'm using KDE mod 4.1 on all of my desktop machines. 
And overall, I'm happy with it. I'm much, much happier with it on my desktop. For some reason, the the speed um, difference doesn't seem to be that palpable on my laptop. But on my desktop, it's m- a much friendlier, much better experience. It is it is better despite the fact that the panel is fail in almost every way imaginable. Okay, so on to Xorg. Um, and this is an interesting topic. Because it is obviously you gotta have it if you want a desktop Linux, and not a lot of people report on it. Feronix is is one of the, the the good places to find out the deets on what's going on with X, but not a lot of people report on what's going on with X. Um, yeah. And if you've been following X, they've been they've had a lot of big things planned. You know, things like kernel mode setting. They want to. Um, leave the X work config file in the dust so you don't have to deal with it anymore. They want it so-called bulletproof X to where it'll just configure itself properly to begin with. Yes. But there have been a lot of development challenges with X. Um, I know that X server um, 1.4.9, I want to say, maybe 1.4.1, it was, it's something in the 1.4 series. Um, 1.4.1. Yes, uh, was w- over a half a year late, and yeah. and didn't ship with the feature set it was promised to have. Um, pretty much anything major within the X project is well, slowly moving behind date and behind features. Yeah, one point four point one was supposed to basically fix all the crashers, all the major bugs in 1.4 because they basically rewrote everything for 1.4 so that's understandable that you know there were bugs you know but it took them it was over six months late and there were still and there are still two very major bugs that are classified as as either major or critical in the X bug tracker that were slated to be fixed in 1.4.1 now, before we get too much in depth um, with X, um, it's probably I find this terribly interesting. It's uh, it's good to know who's actually working on it to begin with. Yes. Um, and this is really surprising. A lot of this is very, very surprising. First off, um, the graphics makers, they the major ones don't do squat for X. Um, AMD slash ATI was less than half a percent of changes in X. But, see, AMD slash ATI, whatever you want to call them, uh, they may not merge many changes in, but at the very least, they say, here are specs, you know, you all can work on them, have fun. Yeah, but that's, that's strictly for 2D, though. They're still holding their cards on 3D. Oh, I thought they gave out 3D. As far as I know, they 3D is no. Uh-uh. Um, ah. 2D is pretty much completely open, um, but 3D is is still pretty much a proprietary landscape. Hey, I could be wrong, but that's my understanding at this time. If somebody out there, you know, thinks I'm a bleeding idiot, email me and tell me, and give me a link, back up your evidence, show me how I'm wrong, and I will do a mea culpa next episode. Yes. Um, NVIDIA was expectedly a little bigger, but still pretty small, about 1%. Um, 
And speaking of any one of their one of their proposed changes actually got rolled back. What they wanted to do is, and I actually agree with this. Um, they wanted to change uh, X so that when it goes to configure the X server, you know your resolution, all that good stuff. And if it sees that you have a vendor ID that corresponds to an NVIDIA card, it will automatically try to use NVIDIA's binary driver if it's installed before defaulting to the open source NV driver. I really don't see a problem with that because the NVIDIA driver isn't really... um, Well, first off... Uh, there's nothing out there to replace the NVIDIA driver for 3D anything, yeah. pretty much. Well, yeah. it's a nice theory, but it sucks. Yes, so far it's still woefully behind. I mean, hey, I'm all for open source and so on, but, it, but before, I mean, what is more important than open source is your hardware actually working, because if your hardware doesn't work, it doesn't matter how open it is. And exactly. if and if you want to do some 3D gaming or some serious 3D CAD work, um, and you got an NVIDIA card, you've got one choice, and that's that binary driver. Period. So I didn't see the, the real big deal with this, especially since on most distros you have to sort of go out of your way to install the NVIDIA driver. Presumably, yeah. if the NVIDIA driver is resident on your system, and you have an NVIDIA card, you want to use the driver to begin with. And um, basically, the X developers rolled back the change that the NVIDIA guy made and said, hey, we don't want X to depend on proprietary blobs that we can't develop. I mean, he made a good argument in principle, but in functionality, I think the argument is pretty lacking. Simply because the, the user would have to go out of their way in almost all cases to install the NVIDIA binary driver, and if it's there, why not use it? I mean, it's not like they were trying to force the NVIDIA driver on everybody. And if you were using the NVIDIA binary driver, you know, and this is the way it is now, Bulletproof X, it helps you a little bit if, you know, you get a kernel upgrade and you don't install the new NVIDIA binary driver, but, uh, yeah, you can't use, you know, X without a config because it'll use the 2D driver and that's just not fun. So, I mean, I see both sides of the argument, but taking into account that, you know, your end user, you know, is the goal here. I don't see anything wrong with with changing the behavior of X to do that. It's a minor change, and it only helps the user in the end. Yeah. But back to the contributors. Um, The actual distributions of Linux were much smaller than I thought they would have been. Um, Well, should I let me let me rephrase that? The community-based. Um, Linux distributions were much smaller than I figured they would have been. Um, Debian was uh, about 1.5%. All of the BSDs were about 1.5%. Gen 2 was a little under half a percent. Huh. And uh, what's really shocking is is the heavy hitters, the people really doing work behind X. And we'll go ahead and get out of the way. 31% of the commits um, were were categorized under other. That's you know, a whole bunch, you know, professor working in his free time. Like a quarter of a percent making, like, you know, a change to 1.c exactly. file or something. 
Exactly. Um, lots of lots of people doing one change, small changes, things like that, and that was that was about thirty percent. Yeah. The real Which, heavy there's hitter. There's nothing against that. Just to mention, there's nothing against that. It's more or less that you know. Yeah. It, any work is good. Yes, any work is good, but you know the the people who drop in and make one change aren't the people who really sustain the project or give it long term vision. Mm. The people really the the number one contributor to X was Red Hat at sixteen um, percent. I think Red Hat probably does far more work for Linux than anybody really appreciates. Uh, yes, I, they Red don't. Hat, they they don't toot their horn. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, they don't toot their horn on what they do at all. I mean, they they took the huge money hit for the patent and basically gave the patent away to everybody in the open source community. And they're pretty much the number one contributor to X in terms of an entity. Probably a quarter of the code in GNOME is probably Red Hat. Maybe 5-10% of the code in KDE 3 at least is Red Hat. Uh, Shit, what else? You know, a lot of kernel code is Red Hat. I know that for a fact. It's just that, it's just that, like, Red Hat has, yes, they're kind of the original, you know, Linux company, but they've got so much stuff and nobody gives them really any credit for that. Yes, they have a, just a shocking amount of, of output and changes and influence in the major projects, and hardly anybody knows about it. They, like I said, they don't toot their horn on what they're doing, and I think they should do that a little more because I think they're horribly underappreciated. I mean, they don't toot their horn, but like, for example, um, and I think I kind of talked about this on another on an earlier episode. I'm going to. That was the wrong one. I'm going to my GNOME panel, and I'm... Shit. This... I fail. Well, there's always KDE mod. True, but... (laughs) (laughs) If you get past the panel, it's really good. (laughs) Well, no, I'm... Because I did this at another time. Maybe it was all removed, which I really would not like that much. Yeah, wow. Looks like it was almost all removed. Uh, You know, you right-click on the trash... In GNOME, I think probably 2.20 and earlier, and you go to About, it says, you know, Copyright Red Hat 2004. You know, you go to the clock, Copyright Red Hat 2004. So um, after Red Hat, the second biggest contributor was um, Intel at 14%. I sort of expected that because they, they were, you know, they have the most friendly open source Good driver GPUs on the market. They're they're not the fastest. They're certainly not going to go. You're not going to go play Crisis or Far Cry at a good frame rate on them. Um, yeah. But they're pretty good GPUs all around, all things considered. And of course, they're top notch with their open source support. You know, to the point of making Microsoft angry. In fact. Yeah. And after that is one that I bet also nobody would guess, the third biggest. And I asked you about this before the show, and you couldn't figure it out either. Um, the And I, it makes a little more sense when you consider their subsidiaries that they've acquired, but still unexpected. 
Nokia coming in at 10%. And yeah, for those who don't know, that's part of that is because Nokia bought Trolltech, the people who did QT, which is the technology behind KDE. And then after that, it drops way off. Um, the next the next three grouped together, well, four really. Um, Apple at 5.6%. Hey, uh, here I was thinking all Apple did was buy cups in terms of their open source contributions. Yeah. Um, Sun at 5.4%. Novell, 4%. IBM, 3%. And then from there, a bunch of little dinky nothings, you know, um, HP at 0.01%, things like that. So yeah. overwhelmingly... It seems to be a sort of sparse community and predominantly an Intel and Red Hat affair. Yeah, I mean, between them two, what was it like, fifty percent? Uh, between between Red Hat Intel and community, you're at you're at over fifty percent. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's interesting. But I mean, the thing is, is that Red Hat's driving this. They've got money in the bank. You know, it's not like they're doing this in their free time. You know, they're actually getting paid for this. And yet, there are so many delay after delay after delay. Yes. You know, and things that people have been, like, wanting. For example, MPX, multiple pointer X. It's not the coolest thing ever, but it's kind of nice. Um, That was supposed to be an XORG 7.4, which is in release candidate now. It isn't. It won't be until 7.5, which could be and probably will be another year before that comes out. I mean, you know, one of the targets for uh, Ubuntu 7.10 was Bulletproof X. And they had to actually cherry pick it, cherry pick some of the Bulletproof X fixes from Trunk because XORG 7.3 wasn't ready in time. It just feels to me like, you know, one of the most integral parts of Linux, and it yes, it doesn't get the love it deserves, but it's so integral and it's falling so far behind. Yeah, I would I would agree. It's 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 not like they've they've lacked vision. Um. Mm-hmm. You know they've had good features um, announced. You know, they, you know, real noticeable improvements. But yeah. um, it seems like after they, you know, have their little, I believe they have like a little developer summit. It seems like after they meet and they announce the upcoming release and the upcoming features, you don't hear from them until you know months after release, and then it's saying, oh, we're gonna cut this, we're gonna cut that, and then they vanish again, and you hear from them a couple months later, and it's finally a release, and a little more is cut out, and stuff's pushed back even further. I mean... It's basically the Vista of Linux software development. <laughs> oh, no, he went there. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, what? that's exactly what happened with Vista. First, you know, it was supposed to come out in, like, 2003, and as we all know, it didn't come out till early 2007, and it was supposed to have, like, WinFS and, like, you know, a really new, completely, like, redesigned UI and great security, all this amazing stuff. And it's pretty much got none of it. Yeah, if there's any um, ex-developers out there listening or if you know somebody who's an ex-developer, 
put them in touch with us. I would like to know what their take is on, on what's going on. Is it just that there's so much work and they're understaffed, they don't have enough manpower, or or it's just, you know, really, you know, they have to doing a lot of rewriting of code. It's just really hard. I mean, I know one of the biggest challenges with X is that becoming a developer is just, for X, is just a huge pain. There's so much you have to learn just to become just to have basic competency in, in what's going on and keeping up to date. It's it's kind of like the Linux kernel. Yeah, you can come in and make a bug fix, but do you really feel competent enough to code on it some? Yeah, no. And, I mean, th- that's the other thing that I was going to mention. Um, outside of the kernel, what's the most important piece of Linux? Outside of the kernel on the C compiler. Sorry. Yeah, outside of the kernel and GCC... I could make a pretty good argument for HAL and Dbus and those other um, um, project porting sort of initiatives for you know. Open. Well, well, here's the thing: we lived without HAL. We lived without UDEV. We lived without Dbus. Painfully, but we lived. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't actually that pa- all that painful. It was just like, why weren't these here in the first place? But that's, I mean, that we're not. But outside of, like, you know, pretty much the big four are kernel, C compiler, bash, or a shell, you know, if you're not a bash fan, and X. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, you don't really need KDE because X ships with a window manager that's enough to get things done. Not well, but it'll get things done with a GUI. Yeah, I mean, you could even just do, you know straight start X and have a whole yeah, bunch X of nice big you know terminals that aren't 60 columns or whatever and you could get a lot more done that way and that's like the most primitive GUI there is whatsoever yeah and then like you know the X kind of stuff like X clock and shit like that yeah I mean it it looks like something straight out of like pre-development of Windows 3.x almost yeah it really does <laughs> I mean, if if anyone kind of uses that as their main desktop, please use, like, Scrot or something and screenshot it and put it up in our forums or link it to us in IRC or something. Yes. So that we can see the awesomeness. That would be terribly amusing. I, and I bet somebody is doing that, too. I, I wouldn't exactly be surprised. But, uh, yeah, if you know anybody out there who's an ex-developer, please, please send them to us. We would love to interview them and see what's going on and and get a peek into the mindset of what's really going on in the ex-community, what they think's a problem, what they think isn't a problem. Because, I mean, all we can do is speculate out here. If, you know, we're just two guys yeah. looking at the evidence and, you know, talking out of our ass and so you can enjoy us. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. And so I think that will about wrap it up for our um, pie episode. Um, let us know what you think. Uh, haven't heard anything good or bad about the audio quality, so I'm just going to assume that it was so amazing it put you out unconscious. Yes, yes. It's so amazing it might have made you crap yourself, but then we probably would have heard from it. Like, your your podcast made me crap myself, you bastards. <laughs> 
Um, as usual, you can find us on our forum, sourcecast.org slash forum. Um, you can also reach us on IRC, irc.sourcecast.org. That wasn't entirely working um, the first few days after our last podcast release. We apologize. That is working now. Um, and we're both idling in that channel all the time. Um at JD at sourcecast.org and Jeremy J E R E M Y at sourcecast.org. Um, so contact us any one of those ways. We always love hearing from you what's good, what's bad, what you disagree with, and you know, hey, we'll and we love forums, debating with you. Yep, and our forums, sourcecast.org slash forums. Yes, and uh, as as one little tidbit of something I uh, plugged last episode. Um, we now have a call for papers and a preliminary sign-up for the Southeast Linux Fest. So if you're in the Southeast and are interested in traveling to the Southeast in the summer of 09, go to southeastlinuxfest.com slash wiki. And uh, even better still, Chris DeBona, I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know who he is. He has expressed extreme interest in coming and Barring other conflicts, we'll probably be there, uh, hopefully as a speaker, but we're still talking with him. Yes. Also, it is possible, and I'm not really a part of the Southeast Linux Fest because I'm not in the Southeast. Yeah, Yankee. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, some employees from Red Hat and uh, RPAT might be there because they're just up in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. So if any of you guys... If any RPath or Red Hat developers, people are listening, you know, take a look. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, we may sneak you down here and we may do something like a, a live show there. I'd, it'll all just see how it shakes out. But if we do that, of course, it will be like Lug Radio Live only minus all the BS. <laughs> yeah, minus all the BS, minus... John O'Bacon. Uh, that, that's what I, I should have said minus the John O'Bacon. I should have gone with our running joke. You, you, you should have. You should have. Although it would be amazing if he was actually there. Okay, hold on. Here we go. It, it'll be like Lug Radio Live minus the Ubuntu Love Fest. There we go. That works. So uh, contact us any of those ways, forums, comments, email, IRC. We, we love interacting and talking with you, and we'll help you out any way we can. Uh, Until next time, you've been listening to SourceCast. I'm Jeremy. I'm JD. So until next time, remember, if you're having trouble with your hardware in Linux, just post a scathing review on Dig and have 10,000 people there flame the hardware vendor out of existence.
Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.